Happy Tuesday, everyone. You survived the hardest day of the work week. Monday is behind us. The rest of the week is before us, but you're one day deeper in and you're one day closer to hunting season. And we got here, Mr. John Teeter. Hopefully you, uh, I'm not sure when this one's coming out. It might be after his full length episode or it might be before his full length episode. Either way, you can either look forward to it and go back and listen to it again, whatever it is. John has just one of the best minds that I get to talk to on the podcast. He looks at things totally differently, and I like that about him. He doesn't just follow uh, lockstep the the usual method that's talked about, and that's that can be easy to do in the uh, land management world because a lot of people talk about the exact same things over and over again. So I like that about John. Um, John, I'm going to ask for your honest opinion on uh, conservation and hunt property management how do we make moves on our hunting properties that are best practice for the land and are um uh, still going to make our property huntable you know so we're talking here like could be removing invasives implementing uh you know a return to all native plants uh type of plan um, obviously I work for a company called Hoxie native seeds. So that's, that's kind of where I'm at. I would hope to get to that point, but I also understand that that's not totally realistic for one, because we have just so many invasive plants, um, in, in the, uh, <laughs> uh, in the fabric of the landscape now. And so it, it's, it's a constant, constant maintenance thing, but also it's not realistic if you're wanting to hunt, uh, that property that you might own. If you go in and napalm that thing to the ground, you're not going to have anything left to hunt. So, like, what's a realistic look at that? So, it's an interesting topic because a lot of people, when they start to think about their property, they don't necessarily think about the lowest hole in the bucket. A lot of times, it's food availability Mm. from a seasonal standpoint. And when you look at a food, kind of, it's food value, we, we kind of scale everything and you know, more food's better, right? If there was more, it's not more deer, it's more food. The other piece of this is breaking down kind of the essentials. A lot of times when we look at our property from a conservation standpoint, we think about what it has and what it doesn't have. Hmm. And so a lot of times the invasive plant scenario that you brought up earlier is, you know, how invasive are these plants? So the non-native plants or even native plants are invasive. A lot of these areas, wild grape, it's native, but it becomes overbearing. Yeah. And I've actually used native plants to fight non-native plants. And that's one scenario. Wild grapes being one of those where it takes over, let's say, a, um, a buckthorn thicket. Okay. And it kills the buckthorn. So th- there's this kind of yin-yang. Um, in an area that I was just working on recently, there's a lot of dying white ash. And, uh, you know, these, and it's crazy. The, the wild grape will seek out these trees and they will use them as a canopy exposure, right? Mm-hmm. So plants understand their synergies in the landscape. And, you know, go back to Avatar, the movie, and the plants speak to each other. Yeah. Plants are so intelligent that we forget to recognize that there's communication signals. You know, there's fungal yeah. networks or almost That's neural true. networks. And those plants, um, at least in the capacity of understanding you know, maybe one's being browsed on by deer, you know, the phenols or toxicity levels in another plant increases accordingly. Mm-hmm. And so 
you know, that's a breeding opportunity or fitness opportunity where that plant will continue to live another day. So mm -hmm. there's things when we look at our landscape that are, that are ecology based, right? There's been studies and I'll just quickly talk about, you know, briefly, cause I've, I've had to deal with a lot of different landscape types, bees. There is not a study out there right now that says that non-native or native plants are better for bees. Hmm. Um, certain species of bees. Now, this is generic, really. This is looking at a big picture. Certain types of bees, per se, may have a preference to native plants. But in general, it's a 50-50 split on average across the board. Hmm. Um, so think about that. And most of our bee populations are not native at this yeah, point. That's right. That's true. So you've, you've kind of got to measure that in the scale of things. But the one thing I would say, if you're taking a conservation approach to your property, it's the lowest hole in the bucket is, is the train, the plants that provide the landscape. And I'll just go through, cause I'm a big thicket guy. I feel like thickets, at least in my area are the most underutilized, um, underwhelming, but over opportunity. You know, we don't, we don't value these like we should. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to give some plants that I think are the most important in the landscape. And I, I, I didn't intend to do this, but I'll just kind of go down my list here. Sure. I'm just going to go off the top of my head. Uh, rough leaf dogwood, Great structure and species. Um, same thing with gray dogwood. These species provide that structure and thicket. Mm -hmm. uh, silky dogwood, consumable, flowering dogwood. You see, I love the dogwood species. I yep. think they provide the best structure for deer. Buttonbush, that's a great plant. That's going to be kind of in your wetland areas. Um, not a consumable, but, but again, that structure that we're looking for. Uh, hawthorn, in my area, I'm in New York State. Mm -hmm. Huge, huge plant provides uh, opportunity for food and cover it's the right height redbud falls into that group as well mm. the structure provides camouflaging effect there's a thermal benefit it's at the right height and structure to provide a lot of benefits so when we're looking at these plants and i always use hemlock as an example what's the cover value right yeah hemlock is eaten readily eaten by deer at a certain point in time it provides a thermal benefit right and it actually because those plants are so active, there's a lot of microbial activity in the ground. They tend to heat quicker. And so you'll see these areas where you've got these like snow patches and all of a sudden underneath that root ball, there's a lot of heating effect. Hemlock mm. would be one of those species because of the conical shape, uh, the activity, the moisture levels, all those things kind of play into that scenario. So it's thinking more specifically about plants, crab apples, huge. If you have crab apples on your landscape, uh, and they're not a lot in the Midwest. In my areas are crab apples all over the place. Prune hmm. those. Stop planting trees and take advantage of some of the, the natural crab apples that are on the landscape. Uh, hopworm bean, ironwood, one of my favorite species, the hinge cut low. Yeah, I, and so we talk about practices. Hinge cutting uh, for moisture retention, for structure, immediate structure, uh, to create the next opportunity for, I guess, bedding locations is ideal. Um, instantaneous gratification. This is an instantaneously, you know, uh, developed structure that is, is going to really provide a thermal benefit if you don't have coniferous trees on your property. So it's creating that right structure in the right intervals at the right height in the right locations. It's not overcutting. Deer have a tendency to be in these closed canopy areas more frequently than we consider. If I could plant one species, it would be it would be coniferous tree mm. because of the thermal benefits. And what tree would it be? It would be a hemlock. But I don't mm. have 30 or 40 years to wait. So yeah. you have to think more about, you know, tree plantings in the right groupings. There's a, a philosophy called permaculture. 
-hmm. would ask anybody who listens to this podcast, start doing research on permaculture. Mm. And what that whole philosophy is about synergies, it's developing plant groups that are synergistically uh, related. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, there are plants called mineral accumulators. And what they do is they have deep tap roots. Think of chicory as an example. We have those yeah. in our food plots. They got this deep tap root and it goes down and, and mines the geology and it mm -hmm. pulls up a lot of uh, different type of microbes or microbes are in the roots of these plants. They're on the leaf structure. They're within the plant. And they're the ones that are harnessing all the geological attributes, right? Yeah. You know, the, the, the phosphorus, right? The, the things we care most about. Right. Uh, but also consider what your soil lacks. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we're going from plants to soil, back to plants. It's all intertwined. Yeah. It's the avatar scenario. There's synergies across the board. Um, I was just on a property Saturday. I was working and it was mm -hmm. hot, 82 degrees. And the number one plant that was consumed on this property, number one plant, arrowwood viburnum, period. Mm. No question about it. That plant was browsed comparatively there's nanaberry there's a whole that was the number one choice of deer and i could dissect how long ago that plant was consumed it was consumed three to four weeks ago so at that interval of time that plant is consumed at a high mm. interval now that's the level of specificity you want to get in if you're a conservationist you're looking at that type of detail yeah. and you want more 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 yeah especially especially if you're uh wanting to hunt that property too and it just helps you helps you learn what what uh is the best way to achieve both of your goals which is promoting conservation and and having some good hunting opportunities too so and i'll throw on there too you know native plants they uh a lot of native grasses and flowers send down those deep root systems as well and can reach into some of those uh those mineral deposits and when I, the other thing i was thinking of too is just the difference there between a monoculture, like we see so much of our, especially here in the Midwest, our land is treated as it doesn't have that cycle that John talked about of the the soil helps the plants, the plants help the soil, and it, and it keeps a building and building and building. Um, you can't have that if all you're ever going to do is have, you know, a corn bean rotation for your, your food plots, you know, and uh, looking into some of those planting some of those native perennial food plots that have a great amount of diversity. And also you might be planting a native plant, but if you can do a monoculture of native plants as well, um, we joke about all the time, you know, hunters, all they want is switchgrass and switchgrass is helpful. It does, it does serve for some nice things, uh, especially some of the different varieties, which are technically native to North America in some cases, but not native to, you know, your eco type or your eco region where you're at. And they can work well for screening and bedding cover, but uh, the soil is much better off if you can have that diverse, that diverse mixture there and get all those different benefits that John talked about. Um, man, that was good. That's really good. And uh, yeah. it, it's important to try and learn more about that because then we get closer to, to fixing it. You know, we talk about too, John, in the prairie industry, um, the difference between a reconstructed prairie and a remnant prairie, something that was, you know, naturally formed thousands of years ago after the last glaciation, really. And uh, um, it's so hard for a reconstructed prairie to develop all those different synergistic relationships like you talked about uh, because we don't adequately identify what's the missing link. But 
the study, putting in the study time and trying to find out what those missing links are can pay off in a huge way and you can have the healthiest landscape. And if you have the healthiest landscape, there's a good chance you're going to have the healthiest deer and probably even a few more deer than uh, what your neighbor's going to have uh, because they uh, they follow what, what they want. And if you have what they want during the different times of year, like John mentioned, then uh, it's going to pay off for you. So yeah. well, th- thank you, John, for uh, weighing in on that for us. Thank you again to the listeners for tuning in to this episode of Picking Bones. Um, try to have these for you every Tuesday. I'm, I'm going to kind of give a little disclaimer now. Coming up in the hunting season here in the next few months, um, Picking Bones will change a little bit then. It'll be more kind of like a breakdown of, you know, hey, what was my hunting like this, this week? what i see what's going on probably have some of the guys from the uh that co-host the podcast with me weigh in on what they're seeing and doing too um it's just going to be a little bit more challenging to get guys like john on during that time of year because we're all out wanting to hunt and wanting wanting to do what we talk about you know and uh so that's coming up but also uh do keep in mind this podcast is presented by spartan forge spartan forge is my opinion an industry leader in the opinion of a lot of other people in their mapping and also in their deer behavior predictions 100 science-based bill thompson uh, is the founder bill is a retired military intelligence uh, personnel and he took what he learned for tracking our country's enemies uh, overseas and he applied it to figuring out deer and their behavior and their patterns. And uh, he takes all that information from radio collar data that he's gathered from all kinds of different resources. He has thousands of years of collar data that he uh, uses and uh, runs it through a uh, AI system that he built. And that artificial intelligence makes all the calculations for your area, connects it to there and uh, lines it up to uh, give you the best idea of what deer movement is going to look like in your neck of the woods, and you can make the right decision on when you should hunt. So you're going to want to do that. You get the mapping for free if you download the app, and then you can subscribe to get the the deer behavior side of that. There's more species coming uh, uh, eventually. Um, I don't have all the details on that. We need to get Bill back on here, do a, an episode, and him give us a little bit of an update on that. But, but uh, there's more coming. Bill's always developing always making a better product and that's why you should get it so you can find it in the link in the show notes or if you go to my bio on instagram you can click on the link there and uh, pull it up also uh alex Grun of east west hunts if you need a hunt planner you got a dream hunt that you need to do you need to do it alex will help you do it don't just be a talker be a walker be someone that actually lives out their dreams and uh um, makes it happen and has those stories for the rest of their life uh, you can talk to Alex to get his help in doing so. Go to eastwesthunts.com and just look at all the services he has, the gear rental, uh, the complete hunt plan application uh, for tags and, and buying points for limited draw units and so forth. Alex will take care of all of it, travel arrangements, hotel stays, waypoints of where you should hunt where you should glass where you should fill your canteen he takes care of all of it for you go again to eastwesthunts.com and save yourself 10 percent by using the promo code first gen 10 and uh, save yourself a little bit of money and then take that money after you harvest your tro- trophy animal and head over to old barn taxidermy old barn is a new uh, partner here with first gen hunter podcast and uh, i was just there uh yesterday and 
thoroughly enjoyed my time. I always do. I get a tour of the studio, see what they have in the shop. They do so many deer there, and they do it right. Sam is a true artist in the field of taxidermy. He's got he's had branches uh, in various parts around the country. He does a lot of hunting himself, uh, both here and overseas. And uh, he, like I said, he's a true artist. You you're not going to get bad taxidermy, and that is so important. I'm going to have an episode here. I'm going to do a pick and bones with them. I'm going to ask Sam and Colton to teach us how to become taxidermy snobs. You should be a taxidermy snob. You put all that effort into getting an animal. It's a beautiful creature before we kill it. Keep it that way after you put it on your wall. And uh, so we'll learn about that from them soon. But uh, again, go to Old Barn Taxidermy. You can follow them on Instagram. And uh, you can uh, go to their website and see all their prices and so forth. They're very fair. And uh, we'll get more information on on that and where Sam's heart is with being an affordable, high-quality taxidermist. I had that conversation with him yesterday. It was really, really, uh, you know, encouraging to hear somebody thinking of others the way that sam does so go to old barn taxidermy be sure to tell them that first gen hunter uh, sent you there and uh you will not be disappointed i guarantee it well thank you again for tuning in please leave a five star review for both uh john's podcast maximize your hunt and the first gen hunter podcast on spotify and uh apple Podcasts, or some people call it itunes still uh that uh, really helps us out, gets our podcast out to more people and hopefully educates them on how to be better hunters and land managers. And uh, that is critically important to both John and myself. Well, thanks again, John. And uh, can't wait to talk to you again soon, buddy. And uh, thank talk you. Soon. Too. Yeah, for sure. And thank you everyone else for tuning in. Till next time, take care and take someone hunting.